Take it away. Are we on? We are on. Cool. Blair Hodges, it's great to be with you today. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Nice to be here. So, Blair, you know, you just posted your 100th episode of the podcast. Wow. Congratulations. That is, that's really something. Thank you. And I got to thinking, I've worked across the hall from you for many years now, and I've heard you working on the podcast. I know how passionate you are about it, and I've listened to it, and I, and I see what exceptional quality it is. And I thought, we've got to do something. We have to take your readers behind the scenes. We need to help them find out a little bit more about the podcast. So 100 episodes, how does that feel? Uh, it, I mean, it's a lot. We started back in, I think, 2013, I think, is when the podcast first started coming yeah. out. I had started podcasting with the Fair Mormon group, and I did podcasts for them. I think I did 10 or so episodes. And then I stopped because I went to graduate school, and I just didn't have time. And so when I got this job here at the Maxwell Institute, and they said, one of the things we'd probably have you do is get a podcast going, then I was really excited. That that was one of the things that I was most looking forward to. So looking back like 100 episodes later... <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's 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 a lot. It was a lot of work, um, but it's one of one of the things I think I like most about my job. So it's been fun. So let's take a moment and just tell us the kind of the genesis of the podcast at the Maxwell Institute. How did this come about? You know, who, who was involved? Help us understand a little bit about that. So when I first started podcasting, I was familiar with a few Latter Day Saint themed podcasts, and none of them really spoke to me. Uh, you know, they, they had different audiences. I don't think I was necessarily in the target audience. And at the time, I was doing my undergraduate degree in journalism. So I was taking classes in news media and uh, print journalism, television, and a little bit of radio. And uh, I started listening to Radio West, which is a, a show here in Utah that's also syndicated in some places. And I really liked those type of interviews where someone would sit down with an author or with a really interesting person and talk to them for 45 minutes or an hour, really in depth about something they wrote or what they're a specialist in. And that's the kind of thing that I wanted to see happening. And so um, that's when I connected up with Fair Mormon and started doing those type of shows. And um, it's funny to go back and listen to those. Uh, <laughs> it's very different. I was very new. Uh, but what I wanted to do was not just talk about problems. Uh, and I think, I think it's important to talk about problems and, and address problems. But I also wanted to talk about how people think about things, how a historian works, how anthropologist works, how, how a philosopher works, and start to introduce listeners to the ways that really smart people think about stuff. Because um, listeners are smart, and it's I think it's easy for them to grasp a hold of it. They just have to be introduced to a person who's doing that work. So, so rather than setting up questions and giving answers to them, here's this problem, here's the solution to it. I wanted to show how how scholars work on problems, so that people could do that for themselves too. It's like I wanted to give people fish, and I wanted to teach people to fish. I wanted to do both of those things. You know, and I've listened to the podcast, and, I, and Blair, I have to say, you've got a great voice for it. But I'm a little confused why we're not calling it the HodgePod. Yeah, you, <laughs> I think you floated that uh, <laughs> back in the day. Uh, for some reason, it must have fallen through the cracks. So. You know, for longtime listeners of the podcast, they've spent dozens of hours with you. And I thought they'd like to know a little bit more about you. So maybe we'll start that by me asking you what I think is an obvious question. How is it possible that the Haunted Mansion is your favorite ride at Disneyland? 
It's true. The Haunted Mansion... I think the Haunted Mansion is the best theme park attraction. Uh, it's different than a ride. A ride is, uh, you know, something that you sit down on and you go up and down a hill and, and that. An attraction tells a story. And the Haunted Mansion tells a story. And the Haunted Mansion is a product of committee work gone amok. <laughs> you have a visionary in Walt Disney and he gets this team together who disagree on all sorts of things. One of them wants it to be funny. One of them wants it to be scary. One of them wants it to be weird. They all have all these different ideas. And then they're supposed to make this attraction out of it. And this is near the end of Walt Disney's life. And so he actually dies before they finish it. And what you ended up getting was kind of a mix of all three of those things and the story that it tells. So I actually kind of like looking at it from an interpretive lens of like seeing the story that it's trying to tell and how you can see these different voices in it. And I just think it's cool. I, I just like the Haunted Mansion. I I have since uh, since the first time I went to Disneyland when I was a teenager. And, uh, you know. Well, maybe we'll hear from a, a listener. Maybe there's somebody out there listening who also yeah. would choose the Haunted Mansion. I don't think so, but we'll, but we, no, we might hear, hear they'll from know. somebody. It's the 50th anniversary <laughs> of that ride this year. Oh, okay. So, yeah, this last year, I should say. So, yeah, it's, it's a time to celebrate for the Haunted Mansion fans. Now, would that would you have enough time to produce a podcast uh, during that ride? Is it? Uh, I, I haven't been on it's it a, for uh, about thirty years. Now. Yeah, so the ride's like fourteen minutes long, and it's pretty. There's a lot of talking, so you have a host that's walking you through it. You'd so have some background music. You'd have somebody talk. You know, yeah. Um, you can you can listen to the whole thing online, and uh, and I do uh, twice daily. And, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he does. <laughs> well, your your listeners might be interested to know you do have a, a miniature replica of the haunted mansion in your office and i've that's how i uh, came to know that about you so back to the back to the podcast i think it would be really interesting if we could kind of take a little bit of a behind the scenes tour of preparing an episode let's talk about how you prepare so i prepare by probably over preparing this is a benefit of not having to do a show daily or even weekly uh the first thing I do is to read the book. Um, I read the whole thing. And I, over the years, have developed kind of an annotation system. So I'm using different colored highlighters and, and I'm writing notes as I'm going. And I'll oftentimes, when I finish a chapter, I'll go back to the chapter heading and I'll write out an outline of that chapter because it's fresh in my mind at that point. I think that's a really important point. In fact, one of your listeners wanted to know, are you, are you skimming these books it no, sounds yeah. like no. With In almost every case, I've been able to read the whole book first. There are a few instances where I haven't. For example, The Study Quran, which is a great episode. You know, I wasn't able to read the entire Quran to prepare for that yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> I read all the introductory stuff, and I read some reviews of the book. The same goes for other – like we did the Jewish annotated New Testament. I read a lot of those essays, and, and I read some samples out of it. But yeah, I, you know, I couldn't read that whole thing. But most of the books, almost all of them, I've had the chance to read the whole book first, and I read them. You know, if I if I read it, I read it. I don't skim it. Yeah. So what else do you do um, to prepare, Blair? So while I'm making that outline, when I finish reading the book, it's actually my least favorite part of doing a podcast is. Once you're done reading, then you have to prepare for the interview. And for me, that means I need to sit down and think of a narrative arc for the interview. How do I want the story to go? What story was this person trying to tell in their book? And how can that translate over into an hour-long interview and cover as much of the book as I can? I really try to give people a sense for the whole book rather than just focusing it on one thing. Uh, so that's the hardest part is like sitting down, going through my notes, and putting together 
questions. So I write out all my questions and I sometimes will write a question and then some follow-up questions that I may or may not ask depending on how the person answers the question. So I have a really detailed script that I create and then then it's ready to go. I, in fact, I just finished, just before we started this interview, I finished the interview script for Benjamin Park's upcoming interview. So I finished reading his book yesterday, and then I put the script together today. I think that's the hardest part of the whole process. Putting the script together? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And do you stick to it? Do you stick to the script? Or what, what happens mostly, when you get in the mostly, war room? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I sit down for the interview with the person there with me, I have an idea of how I want the interview to go. But in a lot of cases, interviewees will anticipate where an interview is headed because there's a logical progression to it. So sometimes they'll start covering territory in the next question or, you know, and that's fine because that provides me with a really easy segue to the next thing. What's hard is if they jump ahead to something I, ooh, I wanted to save that for the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, sometimes I'll just let them go ahead and do it. Sometimes I'll kind of, you know, hint to them. People can't see the podcast, so I can right. I can do like, oh, hold on, or uh, you know, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that later. So sometimes while we're doing the interview, I can tell a guest like, you know what, let's why don't we cover that later and go back. Uh, so it just depends. It, there are a lot of different ways to handle it. If it if it's really organic and the flow of the interview is great, then I, I have a harder time just telling them let's do that later. Um, if I can tell that oh that there was an easy cutoff point, then I'll probably just stop them. In fact, just like just like you've done 14 times in this interview already. <laughs> yeah, I'm over here waving my hands wildly, Blair, and, and you've already covered almost all of my, my <laughs> questions. <laughs> you know, okay, so you said earlier, we end up with an episode that's maybe 45 minutes long. Do they vary? It's usually, it's usually an hour, which means that people that listen to it in time and a half will spend about 40 minutes with it. And that's, that's how I, I tend to listen to my podcasts in like sped up mode. Yes, I've noticed that. I'd be interested in what listeners do. Uh, but yeah, so we aim for about an hour. I would say interviews, I typically only, you're only seeing five or six minutes hit the cutting room floor. And that would be yeah. if we had to take a break during it or... Occasionally, people will restart their answers. Occasionally, I will want to reset a question. We might strategize like, you know, I was going to ask you about this, but it seems like, you know, how do you feel about this? Yeah. So the nice thing about it not being live is you can edit content on the fly that way. So so we do that. Does that take some getting used to? Because I'm, I'm sitting here doing my first podcast interview yeah. with you. And for some reason, it feels like this is live to me. Yeah, like I, so it does, especially when I began, it did feel that way because editing is extra work. And I didn't want to create extra work for myself. And I'm still that way. I, I would yeah, prefer yeah. the funnest episodes to edit are the ones where it just kind of sails straight through. But yeah. that feeling of liveness kind of goes away, I think, after a time. You are st you still have anxieties during the interview about whether you're going to be able to get to that question. Maybe the, the person's taking too long to answer something that you only wanted them to give a quick answer to. Yeah. So you have to change up the pacing and, and things like that. So there are still a lot of anxieties that I have throughout the interview, but feeling like it's live and that what I'm saying is like set in stone. Yeah, that's not one of them anymore because I get to edit it. So, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the editing. What, what you just said speaks to this idea of having a sort of vision for how this thing is going to turn out before you start. How does that change though? As the, I mean, I'm curious to know, do these things turn out like you expect very often? Or, they usually, or they, they usually do. Yeah. The nice thing about this is authors can usually tell and, and are surprised that I've spent time preparing. I don't know that they anticipate that. 
upfront. But as the interview progresses, they oftentimes will easily get into a flow because it's following a progression of a project that they themselves created. In a way, they set themselves up for how the interview is going to go. Sometimes I'll deviate from the logical order of their book if I, if I think there's kind of a better way to do it for a podcast audience. But most often, uh, I'm following what they're doing. And what stuff gets cut? The biggest thing is when people start going down a road that they decide they don't want to keep going down. And I'm experiencing this as you're interviewing me. It's really hard to be on this side of the microphone for me. And I think for a lot of people to be interviewed because you start to get lost. Like you set up a good question, especially if it's one I'm excited about, I'll start answering it and I'll find myself possibly going like off a tangent. And then while I'm still answering mentally, I'm trying to remember how did I get started on this? What did he ask? Like, I feel like I need to tie up my answer with a nice bow at the end and really punch it. Um, And so I think guests probably experience that and I'm experiencing it right now. (laughs) So it's just, you know, it's a different, it's a different skill uh, to be interviewed than it is to do the interview. Was that a good bow to the end of that question? That was a great bow, Blair. Uh, And you're easy to interview because you know exactly what I should be looking for (laughs) if I knew what I was doing. So that's wonderful. No, this is good, man. I meant to spend a little bit of time at the beginning, um, not just talking about the beginning of the podcast, but what's your vision for the podcast? What do you hope listeners take out of it? What, What are you giving them? So in the beginning, you know, the Maxwell Institute's mission statement when I first was hired here was different, right? So in the beginning, Jerry Bradford, who was the director at the time, really wanted the podcast to basically embody the mission statement, which was about information about religious texts, right? Interreligious understanding and dialogue. And so at the beginning, I did a couple Latter-day Saint-themed episodes, and even then Jerry was sort of like, why don't you focus more on... uh, other faiths and religious texts in particular, rather than Mormon issues. Okay, I can do that. So we started doing the series on the Princeton Lives of Great Religious Books series, which is a fantastic series. So now I'm interviewing people about the Quran and about Augustine's Confessions and about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters from Prison. So we're really digging into these religious texts and stuff. The Maxwell Institute's mission evolves, and as it's evolved to become a place where we gather and nurture disciple scholars and engage in strengthening people's faith and engaging the world's religious ideas. So it wasn't a huge shift. I felt like I was already doing a lot of that. So giving something educational, inspirational, and perhaps even challenging uh, is, is what I'm trying to do. I want the podcast to have an ethic of hospitality to it, where people feel like they can explore religious ideas, feel at home in their own, and, and perhaps even come to see some things in a different light. So that's really what I'm aiming for. When you do the interviews, you seem so comfortable to me. Uh, are you really as comfortable <laughs> as you sound? Well, it's like I said, like there are anxieties that happen, and I'm sure you're experiencing some of them right now. Like you might be thinking about what your next question is going to be. You might be thinking about how much time is left. We're at 17 minutes on the <laughs> recording right <laughs> now, which, yeah, would uh, you know. So that's kind of what's happening is I'm looking at my script. I'm trying to keep tabs on the interview itself, but also be really responsive and tuned in to what the person is saying at the same time. So you're, you're doing a lot at, at once. You're being responsive to them, but you're also shaping the interview. So sometimes something they say would spark a follow-up question. And you look at the clock and you're like, well, you have to start bargaining with yourself. Like, okay, well, if I ask this now, I'm not going to be able to ask that thing. So what matters more? What do I want more? And you don't always get it right because sometimes your follow-up question's a dud and you don't get a good response. And 
You know, in that instance, though, if the person has time, you can end up asking that later question and edit out the bad follow up. So because it's not live, you have a little bit more flexibility. But those are the kind of things that you're thinking about. So yeah, to kind of maintain composure and interest, you want to keep that going through the interview. But you've also got all these anxieties going on. And the biggest thing I should say, and this answers your last question as well, is I don't want to be the focus of the podcast. It's not about me. I try to have questions that this audience would be interested in hearing answers to. So my job is to get out of the way of the guest and let them tell the story of the interview. And I'm just there to kind of occasionally translate something if they use some weird scholarly term that I had to look up when I was reading their book, you know, <laughs> or to kind of prod the interview along, keep, keep it moving. But I'm not the focus of it. It's not about me. I am a stand-in. And the less obvious of a stand-in I am while the podcast is still engaging, the better. Well, that explains why we don't call it the hodgepodge. Yeah. <laughs> One of your listeners made the comment that listening to the podcast is like listening to, to two friends having a conversation. And I think that really speaks to how comfortable not only you are, at least the, you portray as well as your guest. I think you must really put people at ease. And like you say, the edit, the editing floor is always there. So I decided that since you can edit anything out you want, that I wasn't going to restrict myself to, to <laughs> any particular questions. I was going to feel very safe in this interview. You know, Blair, and I, I want our listeners to get a feel for you, get a feel for the, the person you are. They've heard you. They've heard some of your commentary and thoughts on things. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And particularly, can you think of any life experiences that you've had that have shaped the podcast mm -hmm. or shaped you? Yeah, I mean, I think I really started thinking about other religious traditions when I was a missionary for the church. Um, I served in Wisconsin, so it was, you know, a lot of Germans in that area, Lutheran, uh, evangelicalism, some Catholicism. You know, there's always a kingdom hall in the neighborhood, uh, Seventh-day Adventist. I started thinking more about other religious traditions. And as a missionary, I did that because I wanted to be able to build common ground and offer Latter-day Saint answers to questions that their traditions might not have answers to or that, you know, I'm, I might feel like we have better answers to particular questions. So I started getting interested in other religions. One example, we met a, a Muslim man and he agreed to read the Book of Mormon if I would read the Quran. And so we did an, I was like, okay, sure. So I read the Quran. I, you know, I didn't get it. Um, I didn't understand. I didn't read anything in preparation for it. So I didn't have any context for that type of scripture it was. And of course, it was a translation of the Quran. So I didn't understand that it wasn't truly the Quran anyway. You know, it was a representation of it and all of those things. But it got me thinking about other religions. And I would see things that I liked and that I was drawn to or that I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it became less about preparing myself to argue with other faiths and rather interested in the new light that was cast on my own beliefs because I was learning about what other faiths believed. And so being interested in other religions really started around that time of my mission. When I got home, I became heavily interested in Mormon apologetics, farms, Hugh Nibley, Fair Mormon, all of those things really drew me in. And I was really interested in, you know, because I had my own doubts and, and questions and difficulties and surprises from uh, Latter-day Saint history that I didn't know about and, and those type of things. So I dealt with my own. Uh, I never felt like I hit any sort of crisis point, but I definitely, it was definitely, uh, there were growing pains and uncertainties. And I, and I think even to this day, uh, that's the case. But 
then I started getting interested in religious studies and history and philosophy and those type of things initially as ways to kind of perhaps solve doubts. But then I just became more interested in the quest itself and found it to be there's there's that great quote that we use here from Elder Maxwell, where he says, for a disciple scholar, research is a form of worship. Academic research is a form of worship. And so just the asking of questions and the listening to other people's answers could itself become a way of worshiping God in that it connects me to other people. It connects me to God's children. It connects me to God through those people and valuing the different perspectives and not always agreeing either, but sometimes agreeing uh, and sometimes seeing things in new ways. So, so that's kind of my trajectory. It went through kind of missionary zeal, ready to convert people, uh, apologetics, ready to defend the faith in particular ways, to ready to understand the faith better by engaging in our own history, my own faith's history, and the history and beliefs of other faiths. And I think the podcast probably, you know, probably makes sense, like the product of it. I really do try to maintain a certain level of ambiguity about who I am as an interviewer, because I've found that you can pretty quickly turn a listener off by getting really specific about politics or something or about, so, or I didn't know he thought that or that. So I really do try to not foreground my own prejudices and beliefs. It's inevitable that they're in there because I'm still an embodied person that's asking questions from a particular vantage point. So it's still, there's no objectivity to it, but at least there's a, an attempt at objectivity so that you can really reach and stand in for a bigger group of listeners that was beautiful, first of all. Now, and I know, Blair, that you interview people of many faiths, and the understanding and friendship that you bring to the interviews is apparent. What do you do when you don't know what to ask next? Look at my notes. <laughs> there's, there's always going to be something to go back to my notes to. In fact, there's a nice trick. It's called a bumper, and it's when you reintroduce the guest to people. It's this really nice break, uh, I think for the listener, it, it kind of helps reset things. So I'll say, that's that's so-and-so. We're talking to them about such-and-such. Such, da, 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 da. So that's that usually will happen at a natural place in an interview. And then I either have in my notes where we're going next, or occasionally I'll do that bumper, and then I'll pause for a minute and take, take a drink of water and invite the guest to have a drink of water and think about where we're going to go next. And so I, it's really nice because it's not live especially since I've done so many interviews, I don't really have those moments of like, oh no, like I don't have any place to take that next. Or, or I should say when that does happen, I know just to say that that's what's happening. I'll just tell the guest, okay, I'll be like, yeah, that was a really great answer. Now I'm just trying to think of a transition or something. So I can have a yeah. meta conversation with the person yeah, and I'm comfortable cool. doing that. So, yeah. And I think it might be useful for the listeners to know that this interviewing Blair was not his idea. <laughs> and you know, I, I've actually laughed thinking, Blair, what it would be like if you, you were interviewing yourself. Uh, how long would you pause? Would you use it? You, you mentioned an accent. Maybe you would have pulled that 
if listeners go back to the first couple episodes, they'll hear it. Even then, like my wife and I were laughing about it because I had to go back and look at some previous episode or something. And I was like, at the beginning, I was like, it's the Maximalist 2 pod, podcast, like a podcast, like this weird. Yeah. Well, that would be, you know, as fun as that would be for me to hear you asking yourself questions and then responding. That, that would be an, an interesting thing. I wanted to ask, you know, I, I've known you. I've worked with you. I, I should introduce myself. I'm, I'm Jeremy King. I work, I work across the hall from Blair Hodges at the Maxwell Institute. I'm not a professional podcast interviewer. I do enjoy the podcast. But when I saw that you were about to hit 100 episodes of the podcast, a couple of things went off in my mind. One is, I know that you pour your heart into this and that you're passionate about it. And I also know that if it weren't for you bootstrapping this thing out of nothing, it wouldn't exist. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that. This wasn't a mandate that came down from on top that said, you need to do this. You made this happen. Uh, you understood the mission of the Institute. And, and as you mentioned, it was, it was constituted differently back when the podcast started in 2013. But I want your listeners to understand that, that this is something, this is a labor of love. And, I, and I'm sure they sense that in, in the interviews. To that, I just want to say, you've always been really supportive of this stuff. Jeremy is now the administrator and controller. Back when I started, it, you, I just kind of said, you were the HR guy, right? Like you were handled payroll or handled hiring and, and human resources issues and stuff. And now you help sort of oversee the direction of office staff and your job's really expanded. And you've always been really helpful to me from a professional standpoint. This is the first full-time job I've had since finishing grad school. I finished my master's degree and got this job right after that. And so you've been helpful at initiating me into the world of what it's like to be a grown-up and have an occupation, uh, all the logistics of that. And then uh, Jerry Bradford, of course, was supportive and would sort of give me directions about kind of what he wanted to be. And then when Spencer Fluman came on, he, you know, he revisited everything, whether we would even have a podcast anymore, whether we would be doing these type of books or whether we'd be doing that. So, you know, it was evaluated even at that point. And Spencer came to see the value in having this as a channel, as a connection for people that aren't here at Brigham Young University to be able to be plugged in to what the Maxwell Institute is doing. And so he really shifted the focus more Whereas in the past, I would just go out and find people to interview, people that I was interested in. Oh, that looks like a good book. I kind of want that book. But, you know, I, it was yeah. stuff I was interested in that was pertinent to the Institute. Uh, to now, where Spencer says, listen, uh, what we want to do is is really hone it down to where you're interviewing people that come here. And we used to not have people that came here. So all of a sudden, we have all these guests, lecturers, and people that come and do brown bag presentations, and visiting scholars, and uh, connections with other campus entities here at BYU. So the shape of the show really shifted when Spencer said, all right, well, okay, here's what we want for the podcast under the new direction of what the Maxwell Institute is doing. And so you'll see the shift there where now I'm interviewing people that come to the Institute as guests. I'm not going out. Now, have I had to pass up a few interviews that I would have wanted to do? Yeah. Uh, have I got a few interviews that I don't think I would have been able to get myself? Yeah. So there. So it's been a good trade-off. And I think that Spencer's vision for it was really helpfully disciplinary. It really helped me focus more on what the Institute needed the podcast to be and, and sort of needs the podcast to be. So I'm really thankful for his ongoing support and uh, and for the the role that he's played in shaping what it is today. Yeah. And who would you, you mentioned that uh, you haven't always been able to interview everyone you've wanted to. 
let's uh, let's have some fun here. What? Who? If you could have anyone come come into the studio yeah. here, we almost had. I almost got Charles Taylor, and he is one of my favorite. And he's a philosopher, kind of an intellectual historian. He wrote a fantastic book on um, secularism and on the rise of this secular age. And and his driving question is why was it a thousand years ago that it would have been impossible to disbelieve in God? It was natural to believe in God. To now, people have to work at it. It it seems the opposite now where it seems, you know, you have to work to believe in God rather than having it as a given. So he tells that story. He's a fascinating and wonderful scholar. And and he's, you know, I think he's in his late 80s. He's he's nearing the end of his career. And we almost, I almost uh, got uh, an interview lined up with him. But um, at the time he... He had an illness, like at the time when it was scheduled, and then after that, it just it just never happened. That's one story. The second one's really interesting. I had an interview lined up with Robert Alter, uh, biblical scholar, uh, literary scholar of the Bible. I had this lined up around the time Spencer started looking at what the podcast needed to be. So at that time, again, I was just going out finding people. I set up an interview with Robert Alter, and that's when Spencer's like, you know, we're going to focus on people to come to the Institute. Well, Robert Alter wasn't coming to the Institute. So I had to cancel that. And I canceled that interview. And that was like the hardest, that was so hard because I love Robert Alter. I, you know, I was so excited for it. So I canceled that interview. And then a couple of years later, Robert Alter is brought in. The Maxwell Institute sponsors him to come and give a lecture. And uh, we have an episode coming out with him. And so it, it ended up working out in the end. So <laughs> that was... So what about uh, if you could interview anyone historically, Blair? Have you ever thought about that? No, I don't know. Those are tricky. That's tricky stuff. I mean, because what are you going to say? Like, uh, <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien stuff. is like, what yeah, I'd say. Okay. <laughs> well, Joseph Smith, like, uh, I have questions. Uh, no, I don't know. I guess I haven't really put any thought to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who I would interview. Okay. So maybe back to a few more uh, kind of personal type questions. You take the train to work every day. Yeah. The front what, are, run, what are you front doing? Front runner here in Utah. Front runner. Yeah. A lot of people that listen to the podcast know about front runner. It runs from Salt Lake. I run from Salt Lake to Provo. Yeah. What do you do on the train? Depends on what needs to be done that day. I'll usually look at the emails that have come in overnight, see if there's anything I need to address right away. Uh, doing public communications at the Institute's a much bigger job than what the podcast is. It only takes up 15% of my time. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, Blair, because... I mean, do your listeners understand? Do they know that the podcast is only a part of your job? Do they know what you do at the Maxwell Institute? Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, You know, people that – I think people that know me probably do. Um, You know, I – when I first started here, they had uh, they had me editing books. I, I started the Living Faith series. Morgan Davis, who's here at the Institute, and he was now a co-editor of it, envisioned that book series. And then that was given uh, to me, assigned to me. So I edited those first six books in the Living Faith series, and that was a enormous amount of time. And that was back before the Institute was doing all the things that it's doing today. So when Spencer Fluman got here, the shape of the Institute really shifted. And I think there were questions about whether we even needed a person in, in my position. But it quickly became obvious that, yeah, you do. You need someone promoting these events, promoting the books that we're still doing. The podcast has been really successful. We have a lot of listeners and a lot of people who are plugged into the Institute through that social media, all of that stuff. So, And then I picked up design, like we need event posters. And I started reading books on design and, and illustration. And then we started doing an annual report. And I didn't have any good photos for that first one that we did. And I thought, well, the Institute needs to get a, if they get me a nice camera, I'm going to learn how to 
to do this. So the Institute's camera, I, I learned some photography. And so there's all of these ways that the Institute has given me opportunities to build these new skills. It's been a lot of fun. So the podcast has been there all along, but then there's all these other things that I've been asked to do that have ended up being a lot of fun too. So it's been fun. So you mentioned the Living Faith series, um, among the bestsellers of the Institute, those books. Uh, You also mentioned the annual report. Uh, by the way, if you're listening and you you are interested in what the Maxwell Institute does, uh, we produce an annual report and we'll mail it to you uh, for free. A free copy. Yeah, go to mi.byu.edu/about and you'll see request a copy right there. There the it is, yeah. and you can get your very own copy. It's a nice, glossy, yeah. beautiful annual report that tells you all about what's going on at the Maxwell Institute. And it's got Institute. like talks from Terrell Givens and Melissa Inouye and Spencer oh, yeah. Fluman. It's not just it's not just a list of things that the institute's done. It's also got really great content in there for people to read. Let's talk about that for a minute, Blair, because a couple of years ago, uh, Kathleen Flake gave gave a, a beautiful talk at the annual Maxwell Lecture, and she mentioned not everybody needs the Maxwell Institute. She talked about... She's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here, here we're way off script. I wasn't planning to ask this, but I remember her saying something that really resonated with me, and it, and it was basically... For some people really need the Maxwell Institute, but not everybody necessarily does. Maybe you remember that differently. We can check it. But but I'm going to frame it. I'm going to frame the question that way. And let me ask you: Who most needs the Maxwell Institute? So I think I think there are a few answers to that. I think the mission statement says that it's to gather and nurture disciple scholars. That that part comes first in the mission statement. So the Maxwell Institute has become a place where where scholars who are Latter-day Saints and some and a few who aren't uh, can come to do their research, have a place to do their research and also think about to think about the life of the mind and also think about the things of the spirit. So, uh, how to do, how to think about reason and faith and produce work that's informed by both of those things. And not everything that comes out of the Institute is on that exact level. And we, and it used to be even more so. We had the Mormon Studies Review, for example, and it was definitely pointed toward the academy. It wasn't so much concerned about, uh, spiritual matters. It was an academic publication, which, which has since moved on, which I think is, it's been moved, which I think is a signal about what the Institute's about. And now we have like the brief theological introductions to the Book of Mormon series, where we take scholars who use their academic background and training and produce something for Latter-day Saints that's also spiritually enriching. And so scholars need institutional support to be able to do stuff like that, because the broader academy is not going to be as interested in that. that. Those aren't the kind of books that most people are going to put on there. Uh, CVs, like the Living Faith books that have come out. Patrick Mason did Planted. He's a historian. He talks about history, but that's not a history book. It's not going to go on his professional CV. He's not going to show that to his department and say, here, I published another book because it's a faith-promoting book. It's not a book of, of academic history. It's informed by academic history, but it's not academic history. And many of the Living Faith books are that way, the, with the exception of, of Ashley May Hoyland's book, 100 Birds Taught Me to Fly, and she has an MFA. So that would be something that would look great on her CV, on her resume, because it was poetic. It was, you know, it was memoir. It, it was the kind of things that she was academically trained to do, but that that's rare. So the Maxwell Institute is, is to provide support and a place for people to do this scholarship. And then the things that it produces then are for people who 
really value, again, the life of the mind and the things of the spirit. People who are fine in Sunday school, but they might have a, a deeper need or a different need uh, than someone else might have. The kind of people that listen, I think, to the podcast fall into that category too. They like to think about this stuff. They like to learn. They're curious. Curiosity is a religious virtue. And I think that the Institute, as one small little thing that the church sponsors, can reach a lot of people who have those kind of spiritual needs. The church needs all sorts of people uh, doing all sorts of different work, humanitarian work, educational work, direct religious instruction, all of these things. And the Maxwell Institute is one piece in that bigger puzzle that can reach uh, some Latter-day Saints who who have that that spiritual curiosity and, and interest. I love that you mentioned that. It, it You know, we couldn't have scripted this better, Blair, because I asked I asked one of your listeners, actually I asked a couple of your listeners, if they were to des- describe you in one word, and one of the words I got was curious. Now that could be taken in two ways. <laughs> <laughs> they said in a good way. Oh, good. Yeah, in a good way. <laughs> no, but I, I see that. You know, I, I see you. You're a voracious reader and consumer of uh, of uh, knowledge. That's the uh, other thing I do on the train, by the way, to finish that yeah, and answer that question. Yeah. I, I read a lot. You read a lot, right? So you're curious. You're you're curious. You're a seeker, um, and that comes out. And I love that you mentioned that. I, I won't tell you the second word yet. I'm going to hang on to that. It's ominous. But uh, yeah, no, stay tuned to this uh, non-live. Yeah, you, yet yeah you've only got 15 interview. minutes left. We're at 44 <laughs> minute mark right now. So, and I wonder, oh, you know, oh. people will check their devices now, and it'll probably be like 41 minutes. Well, or something. if we're running low of time, low on time, I need it. I noticed you've been eating a lot of Mikalina lately. Uh, talk to me about that. What's Mikalina? I don't know that. <laughs> Your frozen entrees. Oh, is that the brand? See, I don't even know. I just grabbed the, uh, you know, the one that's like this uh, sort of tamale thing. Yeah. So I just think of it as like the frozen tamales. Yeah, I guess it is Michelinas. Yeah, uh, you know, a okay. lot. it's funny. A lot of times I'll cook it, and sometimes I'll even remember to get it out of the microwave and eat it. Those are the good days. So what are the chances you're li- at least some of your listeners will think we were paid uh, by Mikalina to uh, Sponsored to, by to put that in here? Do, do podcasts do that kind of stuff? Do they do product placement? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so <laughs> most Have podcasts will that? be like Squarespace, Casper Mattresses, uh, Audible. Yeah. Uh, there's There are these podcast sponsors that are on like every show. And I don't know, they must spend a ton of money. Obviously we're not profit. We've, the only spots I used to do were spots for our books. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. do them anymore. People that listen to older episodes are probably hear them. Now I'm, I'll just like interview the author of the book instead of doing a spot for it. Um, but yeah, we're, we're not sponsored. And uh, if, if people want to personally sponsor me under the table, then they <laughs> should send me like a DM or, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually the controller at the Max ones too. So, so if there's any under the table sponsoring, <laughs> then then I'd like to know about that yeah. too. I, I'm, you know, now that we're three-fourths of the way through this thing, I'm realizing how much fun it can be. And I'm thinking, yeah. hey. Um, Doing a good job. Here's, an, here's another thing that, that we just, that we got to talk about because I love it. You've got the original box of Count Chocula and Frankenberry. It's a replica. And what's the, what, boob, is it Booberry? Booberry. Count Chocula and Monster Cereals. So you've got the, you've got the vintage boxes. I, I get one box a year. So when Halloween rolls around, I get a box of each. You've, you got me Count Chocula. Count yeah, Chocula no, I, that, I felt that was important. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And I put the new box in front of your old one, and I think it took you a day or two to recognize that it I did. switched it, that yeah, out. It did. Uh, and, you, and I believe you got me Count Chocula. Yeah, it was Count Chocula. Because, and that is the best. That's the true. That's yeah, the best the one. Three. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the podcast, when I asked your listeners to describe the podcast, these are the words they gave me. Engaging, real, authentic, and genuine. And like I said earlier, one of your listeners made the comment that it's like listening to a conversation between friends. Uh, I want to talk about friendship just a little bit, Blair, because uh, you and I have become friends Something I would never have supposed, perhaps, at the first. Do you remember what you wore to work on your first day? Do you have any recollection no, of that? I don't know. <laughs> something stupid. I remember. No, no. Like a t-shirt. It was your first day, and yeah, it was like you were you were wearing. Um, I remember flip. You were wearing flip flops and kind of a loose a loose shirt, and I just remember thinking, and this this uh, yeah. this is probably sad commentary on me, but you know, I was thinking. If he wears that on his first day of work, which in my which in my mind is always like you dress up a little bit better yeah. than usual. And I thought, where are we going to go from here? But uh, you know, I'll tell you where we went from here is is you've just become a great friend. And uh, yeah, thanks. In my defense, I think I was moving <laughs> stuff in and sort of you know. When you go out, do people ever recognize your voice? A few, have, you ever, have you ever had only that? Only a few times, and it's really funny. Yeah, my. <laughs> The funniest thing that happened was uh, I went – I'm a big uh, Utah jazz fan, and I went to meet Joe Ingalls, one of the jazz players at a grocery store or something. And uh, I'm standing in line, and I see a woman who I went to high school with, and she recognizes me. And that's a little unusual. I don't I don't think I look at all like no. I did in high I saw, school. I, I saw your yearbook. You look yeah. very different. Yeah, clearly different. Anyway, she recognizes me, and, uh, and I said, oh, hey, nice to see you. That's funny. Most uh, people don't recognize me. And right then – a woman walks by and goes, I recognize you, Blair. And then just like kind of keeps walking. And and then uh, she says, yeah, I listened uh, to the podcast. And and, uh, and my son is James. So like I know her son too. So, but I, it doesn't happen very often, but when occasionally uh, someone will, especially at an institute event, that's kind of where it'll happen. Like someone will hear me talking to somebody else and they'll be like looking over like, oh, that's familiar. Who, what does that sound like? When I've seen podcasters that I've listened to a lot, it's always weird to see them. Um, cause they, they rarely look like the person that's talking in your head while you're mowing the lawn. Like you've kind of yeah. got this different idea about what they look like and it's always kind of a letdown. So no offense to my hero podcasters out there, but it's yeah. like, how are we doing on time? We've got about 15, 10, 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. So I don't know if this, this will be, I don't know if this is good to ask for a podcast. I don't, this is my first interview, but I've enjoyed getting to know you and I've enjoyed getting to know some of the events that have shaped your life. And I know one event that really shaped your life uh, was that your dad died when you were young. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, 15. He was diagnosed with brain cancer. I think I, I mentioned this in one of the episodes I kind of talked about losing a parent as a teenager kind of changed my relationship to God in certain ways and that, um, yeah, so... Uh, I lost him at 15. It uh, had turned 16 right after he died. And then, uh, yeah. How, how has that influenced you, Blair? I mean, yeah, I think kind of like what I said in that episode where I just talked about um, I don't have the kind of relationship with God where I feel like I can – and no offense to people who do, but I don't – I just don't have the thing like if I lose my car keys, I can pray and find them or things like that. Because I remember as a kid just pleading as a kid with you know, all my heart that – don't take my dad away. Like we, I need my dad. And, um, and, you know, that was, uh, and it didn't happen. And so I had to recalibrate, I had a different options than I could say, well, you know, God either doesn't listen, God doesn't care. I think a lot of members of the church will say, well, God had this bigger plan. 
Um, and that, and that really didn't work for me either. And so I kind of had to come away with a different orientation, I think, toward God. And, and I, I think the scripture that I have the biggest problem following would be where it says, uh, you know, God's hand is, is acknowledge God's hand in all things. Um, and, but I like to put that alongside the scripture that where Jesus says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. So I guess in my life, if God's super involved, he's done a really good job of not making it obvious. And, and so that's, that's just the, my relationship to God and different members of the church have different ways of looking at it. Well, I hope you don't mind me bringing that up. I, I've seen, especially over this past year, um, I've seen you visiting friends. You you've had some friends this last year that have really suffered, uh, that have had some real serious health concerns. And that's one thing your listeners, I think, should know about you is, is you stick with people through their lows. You, you help people through their hard times. And beneath this kind of cheerful, jovial, and I, I know you to almost always be cheerful. Sometimes you're running around trying to get your camera set up and things for events or whatever. But <laughs> I probably look mad when I'm doing that too. My wife says I have like a, yeah, when I'm focused, you're I'm like. In, you kind of have an intense, you and I share that, I think a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We're both kind of intense. And, yeah. But when I look at these, these words that your listeners use to describe the podcast, real, authentic, genuine, uh, that's the kind of person you are. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that that comes out in the podcast. What I want to say about that is this is really about the people that I get to interview. And I have time and again been so impressed and blessed by the people who sit across from me and talk about their work. It's not easy to be on the microphone and talk about something, in some cases, about books that were you know, published recently, but your work on them finished a year or more ago. And now you're going to sit down and talk to this person about everything, you know, the nitty gritty of it. It's really hard to do. And the, the grace and warmness and candor of the people who have been on the Maxwell Institute podcast make it really enjoyable to produce. All of the guests that, that I've been able to talk to have brought something positive to my life. Uh, and that goes back to, you mentioned friendship. I think friendship is a driving ethos of what we want this show and what we want the Institute to be. And, you know, I picked that signal up from Spencer Fluman, um, his first issue of the Mormon Studies Review. He had an editor's piece in there about friendship. Friendship is the grand principle of Mormonism, says Joseph Smith. And so I really have been blessed and impressed with the warmth and generosity and interest of these academics. These aren't people up in an ivory tower thinking that they're smarter than you. These are people who, because of their professional training, have been through humiliating and difficult, wrenching experiences in order to finish their degrees and get jobs and, and publish things. And they've, they've put everything they've had into these projects. These aren't ivory tower, better than you, smarter than you type people. These are just people, people that have a lot to say about particular things, but they're just people. And, and I think that that kind of friendship and trust and, and mutual, uh, mutual exchange really comes through with these guests. And, and that's, that's a tribute to the people that, that we've been able to bring here to the Institute and the people that, uh, that try to engage the life of the mind and, and the things of the spirit. 
You're listening to the Maxwell Institute podcast. With me today is Blair Hodges, producer, director, <laughs> writer for the podcast. And we're having an absolute wonderful time getting to know you today, Blair. So we're we're running uh, we're running a little short on time and I promised your listeners uh, that I'd reveal the other word that was used to describe you, uh, eccentric. Yes. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, in a good way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they qualified that. But we've uh, we've talked about some of uh, those little quirks. But you know, Blair, uh, we're all we're all quirky. And make sure to edit that last stupid thing I said. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the best? I'm going to leave it in. I occasionally will leave in a. Okay, yeah. I know you do that. Oh. Deidre Deidre had me yeah. uh, leave one in in her interview that was really funny. Where well, I we'll just uh, asked the dumbest <laughs> question. Well, that, that wasn't be, in my notes. Yeah, we. I don't think we've ever put out a podcast episode where we say it's uncut, right? And this yeah. won't. This won't be the first. Uh, wow, that would ratchet things up a little bit, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, you can't... You'd probably just redo the whole thing. <laughs> you have to start over again, yeah. Friends listening to friends. That's uh, that's the Maxwell Institute podcast. Yeah. So let's... Uh, we'll move toward a conclusion here. I wanted to talk about the legacy of the podcast. You're 100 episodes in. It's been going for seven years. You're leaving something behind. What would you hope is the legacy of the Maxwell Institute podcast? I would go back to that word of curiosity, right? Because scholarship always has a shelf life. So a lot of the things that are talked about in a lot of the episodes are going to be dated in a decade or or in a couple decades when new scholars come and ask new questions and produce new scholarship. But the kind of exchange and curiosity and interest and translation, translating stuff that's generally written for an academic audience, translating that to a, a broader audience, those type of things will still need to be done. And so there are some episodes that I think are just going to hold up for a really long time and that even I'll occasionally go back. Empo Tutu's interview on forgiveness, for example, is one that I'll revisit to hear her again and, and some of the wisdom from that. And other episodes where I think, okay, you know, that the one about uh, Mormonism and politics where <laughs> I had the the authors on here predicting the outcome of the election and they were, you know, completely wrong. So shorter shelf life on that. So, But the legacy of the act of thinking in these ways and asking questions and feeling safe to explore and feeling like there are other people that are, that are exploring that way too, even if you don't, you might not know people like that in your own home ward, or if you do, you might feel like you're, you know, that there are more people who aren't interested in that kind of thing. But you've got this show, you've got these people who are talking about it over here, so I think that um, I'm glad that we have an archive of past episodes. I'm really glad that we've transcribed them so people can read them into the future. I, I hope that in some ways I bring things out in interviews from authors that will be of interest to future people. If you know they're looking at Robert Alter's work and they might check out that interview and see what he said about something that maybe I asked him about something that nobody else had asked him about that could be relevant to a future researcher or something. Dad, yeah, that stuff would be great. But the spirit behind the show, which is this, that curiosity is a religious virtue, I hope that that continues to resonate, even with episodes that become dated and, and as, the, you know, as the show gets confined to the dustbin of history and as the earth continues its centripetal descent into heat death and all of those good things. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful thing, Blair, to, to save these voices, um, these wonderful, beautiful, inspired voices for future generations. And despite your best efforts to get out of the way, your voice uh, 
is preserved right alongside them. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it. So there's a couple of questions that won't be our concluding questions, I expect, but I but I have to get them in there because I didn't fit I didn't fit them in when I should have. I've got to ask a lot of your listeners want to know what's your favorite episode, and you don't know, you better give me an, some kind of an answer. Here. Yeah, I don't so, want a cop out answer. Yeah, I'm not big on favorites, but so I I can't really identify a favorite. I can identify there are two of them that come back to my mind more than other ones do. Like for whatever reason, they're just sort of camping out and they'll kind of float across my consciousness every once in a while. And the first one is, I mentioned Empo Tutu's interview, in part because there was a really interesting thing that happened while that interview, the week that that interview happened. So it's an, it's an interview about forgiveness, and she's talking about forgiveness. And I had had an argument with uh, my wife that week. Um, I did something really just, uh, I, you know, unkind to her, just not cool at all. And it really hurt her feelings really bad. And Throughout our marriage, I've always been really eager to apologize for things and to try to take accountability and responsibility. And I kind of prided myself on that. I thought like, you know what? I'm really good at asking for forgiveness. I'm really good at apologizing. I really thought that I was good at that. That was a strength of mine. So I'm sitting in this interview with Empo and we get to this part where she's talking about how when you're apologizing, sometimes apologies can be a way to get around dealing with the pain you've caused other people. So one of the reasons I was so quick to apologize to my wife is because I knew that what I'd done, what I had done hurt her and that made me feel bad and I needed that to go away. And the quickest way to do that is to apologize. But what that doesn't do is allow the person I've hurt time to express their own feelings about everything that happened. Well, naming the hurt is to say what the impact of the event was on me, is to put a word on the feeling and using feeling words that can help the person hearing you kind of get access to, oh, that's how what I did impacted you. What about um, when you're telling the story and naming the hurt, you also have some suggestions for people who are listening when people do that? What are, what are some suggestions to hear people who are telling the story or naming the hurt? So the idea as a, as a hearer or as a listener is, is um, to hold the space open. So you're not fixing, you're not solving, you're not offering a running commentary. <laughs> that's, my, that's my problem, by the way. <laughs> Um, and um, yeah and you're you're also I I find one of the one of the things that um, that can drive me over the edge is um, is when someone else names you know gives a name to my feeling Mm. it's like no you you don't know what I feel until I tell you what I'm feeling so you know don't tell me what I'm feeling let me tell you sometimes people want to do that because it's uncomfortable sometimes to listen to this and let me rush you through that let me (laughs) oh I see this must be how you're feeling well maybe that's part of it but it's not their place to tell you that and also you like you said you need to be the one it's naming that. Yeah. But I think, I think it's natural to want to do that because it can be hard to listen. It can be hard to sit with and create space for people. Yeah. It's actually, it can be quite excruciating. Um, Especially if you're the one that did the hurt. Yes. <laughs> Especially if you're the one that did the hurt. But the gift of listening when you're the one who did the hurt is that it's much 
less likely that you will inflict the same hurt again because you have heard and taken in um, how it impacted the other person and that, that it, you know, it does open up your, the, the empathetic space within you. And so after that interview, I went home and I sat down with her and I said, I want you to, I said, I, I, I said, sorry about this stuff, but I still feel strange and, and unsettled about what happened. And I understand if you don't want to, but can you tell me what it felt like? And I want you to tell me like how you felt about it. And I'm just going to sit here. And she, she just laid all of her feelings out and it was really hard to listen to. And it dawned on me even more that I had been using apology as a way to escape consequences in, in, in some cases to escape having to deal with pain that I'd caused other people. Now, I didn't recognize I was doing that, but from Empo, I learned the importance of letting the person really explain what had happened if they can do that and if they're interested in doing that, to let them speak their pain and then just take it and sit with it. And that's part of your apology, not telling them you're sorry and assuming you know why it hurt, but sitting with why they do. And I learned that from her. So that episode comes up to mind a lot. The other one, much quicker answer, The Work of the Dead is a book by Thomas LaCour. Loved reading that book. It's way too long. His editor was way too generous because he's a brilliant guy. But I loved every page. It's about death and about the burial practices and like why we bury and what different cultures do. And I still think about that episode every couple of weeks, you know, or like whenever someone dies that I know or, you know, it just comes to mind. Um, and he's kind of a secular Jew. He's not really practicing. He's not, I wouldn't call him, he wouldn't consider himself spiritual or anything like that. But there was this really interesting spiritual register to that interview that surprised me. My parents were German Jews who were forced to leave because of Hitler. And my grandfather, I never knew, he died before Hitler, he died in 1927, was a very passionate German nationalist, as were many German Jews. And he was buried in a very spiffy, beautiful cemetery in Hamburg. And I knew what his grave looked like because my grandmother, who escaped and who lived with us, had a picture of it on her desk. So this grave sort of meant to me growing up. And in 1995, I visited Germany for the first time. And my wife said, look, you should take some of your father's ashes. My father never returned to Germany. You should take some of your father's ashes and put them, mix them with the ashes of your grandfather in Germany. And I said, look, that's completely ridiculous. First of all, I don't have any of my father's ashes. We put them in a flower bed in, in Virginia. And secondly, he would have thought this was crazy. My father was a very scientifically oriented, he was a pathologist, and he would have thought this was just rubbish. And she said, no, no, this will just do it. So I collected some dirt from the flower bed, which may have had some ashes in them, but of course the ashes would be no different from the fertilizer that I'm putting to help the flowers. But she asked me to, we took this little bag of dirt from this grave and, and we took them to Hamburg and we found my grandfather's grave and we mixed the dirt from my father's, with may have had my father's ashes in it with my grandfather's grave. You know, and I felt like I was reconciling my father to his, his father. I felt like I was returning my father to Germany, which he had been terribly sad to have lost because of the Nazis. And I was making something right. And I was connecting myself to all this history. And what I use this to say about myself is that, look, I don't believe anything about this. I don't believe my father's ashes were there. I don't think he knew about it. I know he would have thought this was idiotic. Uh, I could give you no conceivable intellectual defense 
for what I did. And I call it sort of a magic we can believe in because it, it was enchanted for me. And so that's I, I use this to say, all right, look, I give up. I don't have a religious account of this. I don't feel any kind of rational account. It just meant a lot to me. And that's kind of the foundational feeling that people have for the dead. It's so that um, it's as if my father and my grandfather were buried in the same place as they would have been had this horrible history not transpired. Those are two of the episodes. Now, I've I've liked a ton of the episodes I've done. People should check out James Goldberg's On the Five Books of Jesus. The mode in the beam has become so embedded, even beyond Christianity, in the English language yeah. that we forget, I mean, a beam. Yeah. He's not saying, this is not a big thing a stuck in your eye. This is something, this is like larger than an eye in your <laughs> eye. I mean, yeah. this is... Uh, I read someone who described Jesus' language as gigantesque. Yeah. These impossibly huge images. And there's almost no way that isn't funny, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and a, a speck of dust, a, what do we call it? So it's a, a moat. A we moat, don't, yeah. Moat, we only yeah. use that, that word has survived entirely in the context of this. <laughs> what it means is a tiny speck of something. Yeah. It's such a juxtaposition that if you weren't aware of it, of course it's funny. Yeah. It's, it's preposterous, it's yeah. huge. And it absolutely captures attention. And you think about how could Jesus have taught large crowds? I mean, you don't have any technologies of magnifying. These right. are, there's constraints of... Well, and the other thing is you don't... Uh, contemporary American culture has pretty pretty calm... I was just watching a church video uh, the other day, and the mob scene is laughable. In that mo- Contemporary Mormons cannot act like a mob. There are plenty of countries in this world where getting on a bus is a more boisterous and violent atmosphere than a mob scene in our movies. Now. But Jesus comes from presumably a culture where crowds are a little more restive and people are doing things. And, you know, anyone who's been to the to the Middle East today can see if you're trying to capture attention, you need you yeah. need that sense of surprise. Big, and yeah. so, yeah, I'm trying to, to to give people a fresh sense of what that probably actually was like. The Kate Bowler episode about the prosperity gospel that turns into a stunning interview about her cancer diagnosis. I mean, people have all kinds of helpful suggestions for people in pain, and they love to give them. And my little sister, I think she said something so wise. She was just like, well, it is because, you know, they love you. Yes. But people are frantic and, and frequently, you know, they just they just grab for whatever's there and what's there is ideas about the power of the mind to overcome all things. I have, I get a lot of that. There's no such thing as luck. You just need to try. You just need to try harder. I'm sure there's a way out of this. There's, I mean, people are fine kind of with a sudden death, yes, very tragic, or a sudden healing. But the ambiguity of staring down death, which I am required to do because at this point I still have inoperable tumors. So if this drug doesn't go well, I don't yet have other choices. So I live in this interim time in which every 60 days I get a scan that tells me if I get another 60 days. And that's how my life works. So it has a very short mental tether in which I am not able to enjoy certainty. And that requires me to live in the present with my beautiful kid and my perfect husband and my lovely life that I am now more grateful for than ever before. So it's hard to move people away from these lovely conveniences that prop up our lives and help us feel sure. But I mean, the truth is none of us know what's going to happen to us. So I just have to live in it in a more ridiculous way. 
you know, there are all these different episodes that, that I'm really proud of because of what the guests were able to bring to. Um, but those are two that come to mind frequently for me. Thank you, Blair. I'll have to, I'll have to look into those episodes. You haven't listened to those yet, Jeremy? I cannot believe you haven't been a completist. By the way, I should say too, listeners, I do give out a completist award. I've only given out a few because only a few people have known about it, I guess. But if you've listened to every episode, send me an email. You'll get a little podcast completist award uh, if you've listened to all the episodes up until now. Maybe the podcast is a little bit like The Haunted Mansion, right? How so? There's been there's been uh, changing visions over time at the Maxwell Institute that have influenced the podcast, but it's put everything together in a way that tells a story, and that tells many stories, not just of the folks that you interview, but a story of the Maxwell Institute, a story of seeking, a story of discovery, and a story of friendship. And, and it's kind of spooky. And it no, is kind of spooky. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's Blair Hodges being interviewed. On his own, uh, on the Maxwell Institute podcast, not the HodgePod. Yes. Um, and hopefully it's been fun for you listeners to get to know him a little bit better, see a little bit behind the scenes about the, about the podcast. Yeah, and that's Jeremy King, uh, administrator and controller here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. Good job, Jeremy. That, that's Thanks, your first Blair. interview. That was really good. Yeah. I expect that it'll be uh, much better after you edit it. <laughs> that's the 100th episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to tell somebody about it. Send it to a friend, leave a review in Apple Podcasts, post it online someplace, help us make more friends for the show, and let me know if you've completed all the episodes. We'll prepare a special gift and send it your way. We'll see you next time on the Maxwell Institute Podcast. Podcast.